for you this week uh we have first on the show we have robert as as per usual we have aaron the triumphant return of aaron hey remember and me i'm back you're back and also we have a uh, special guest of the program jamie peck from the majority report and the antifada uh, how are hey. you today jamie hey i'm tired but i'm surviving <laughs> i think that's the theme of 2021 so far so mm-hmm. at least that's what's up at least you're surviving, right? Um, yeah. So anyway, I wanted to reach out to you to kind of, you know, just kind of get your perspective on a number of things. I know Aaron and, and Robert had some specific questions for you as well. But how are you doing today, Jamie? Oh, like I said, a little tired. I'm always a little tired on Monday and yeah. most days. My body just doesn't feel good, man. <laughs> like, I have not been getting very much exercise Uh I realized only recently I must have been getting more than I thought I was before the pandemic because, uh, yeah, it feels bad, man. Uh, but I don't know. I'm like trying to think of something upbeat and funny to say. <laughs> it's all good. Like I've had some of like the sort of the same issue. Like I can't. I'm, like I'm feeling like a way more sluggish lately. Like after I eat, I'm just exhausted. Yeah, I guess you don't realize how many places you walk to like in the real time world and then when when you're not like leaving and not going and doing anything you just like turn into a puddle of goo or at least i have i just feel like my watch has turned from like being a little passive aggressive to being like actually concerned for me like it used to be like hey you should probably get up and now it's like hey friend like do you want to get up you should probably get up and i'm like yeah that's that's fair thanks Oh, you have yeah. a watch that tells you to exercise? It it doesn't tell me it doesn't tell me to exercise. It just it says maybe you should move a little bit. Just like maybe shift. Just shift just just shift your seat a little bit. It's always a little bit um, you know, shameful. I'm like, oh okay, yeah, I I haven't gotten up from this spot in about three hours. So thanks. Good looking out, watch. Yeah, I went to the doctor not that long ago, and even the even the doctor was just like, uh, you gained some weight, Robert, but um covid don't worry about it i was like okay thanks for the pass oh man yeah i'm a little afraid to go in for my annual physical i just got a reminder from my doctor today and uh yeah i've definitely gained a few pounds but more so that i I, it's bad because i know it's because i've been living an unhealthy lifestyle you know Mm -hmm. if i were like eating healthy and exercising and i gained a few pounds i'd be like fine with that but it's the result of unhealthy habits. I try to eat pretty healthy still, actually. I've always been pretty good at that. But, um, you know, it also gets depressing when it's just me alone in my apartment cooking for myself all the time. Sorry to start things yeah, off on yeah, a depressing yeah, note. Cool. You're good. So it's all good. So, um, <laughs> started off on a depressing note. So, Robert, you had yeah, this question. Yeah, you oh, to yeah. Ask. I just got to understand that when this goes live um, in the morning, People are going to feel the same way you do. They're going to be able to like empathize with you. So you're good. 
All right. Great. Great. See, even famous leftists have these concerns and their bodies feel bad too, just as bad as yours do, probably. So there we go. So here, so if you thought becoming a famous leftist would take care of all your problems, you've heard it here first. It won't. Nope. Robert, go ahead. Oh, okay. So um for those that don't know you, you are a ho- you are a co-host of a little show called The Majority Report, which is on YouTube every day, 11 a.m. Eastern time, and uh, Sam Cedar is the host. That show has lineage. That show has, like, when I was a young, I was in the Marine Corps, and, like, Air America was brand spanking new. And I just got out of the Marine Corps and we had an Air America affiliate in Cincinnati. And um, I used to listen to Air America. Like Jerry Springer had a show. If people people don't know that like Jerry Springer is at least a liberal. I wouldn't call him a leftist, but he's yeah. like a liberal. Absolutely not. He's, he actually saved the Union Terminal train station because the city wanted to get rid of it. But Jerry Springer was the mayor of Cincinnati and said, no way. It's a cultural touchstone. Turn it into a museum. And it's one of like the world's greatest museums now. Jerry Springer is a solid dude. So wow. welcome to the Jerry Springer podcast. Um, but no, you, you're on the show <laughs> that has like legit lineage. And I have questions about like, how did that happen for you? I mean, yeah, it's weird that I'm allowed on this show, right? But um, how it happened for me was I was freelance writing after I quit my job at Death and Taxes um mostly because i had a really terrible boss who made my life miserable um and i was freelancing it was kind of tricky though it was like god i feel like i was maybe 30 at the time and i had had a pretty good writing career up until that point but like and i was getting really good assignments like i wrote uh i started writing stuff for rolling stone and the guardian but the money just wasn't there and uh, anymore like it was harder and harder to make enough money just off freelance writing so then um i got an email from sam cedar kind of out of the blue because i guess he was looking for a new like producer slash contributor on the majority report and uh matt leck the producer had sent sam some of my op-eds from the guardian so uh he contacted me and the rest is history and i'm still there now we're glad you are wow i didn't know that like i really didn't i did so it was he reached out to you which i i think that's 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 actually like makes me like sam more like i know you've joked about bosses but like for a boss sam's okay um but sure. just the idea that he hired you and you are kind of the, I would say you're like the yin to that show's yang. Cause Sam's like a centrist liberal and you're like crazy. Give some credit. He's a left liberal. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. And I, I think to bring that into focus, you said something that always sticks in my head because I feel like I am going farther and farther left every day. But you told a caller on that show one day who had like a really bad take about something. You said, you better listen to reasonable people like Sam before like people like me get in charge of things. Yeah, well, actually, I'm going to walk that back a little bit because as we've discussed quite a bit on the Antifada uh, recently, which is the podcast that I own along with own 
sound like a capitalist. I, I, yes, I am a worker owner at the Antifada together with uh, Sean KB and Andy, who has many monikers. Uh, we have been talking a lot lately about how the communists are the adults in the room right now and we are the reasonable ones and if you're sick of hearing about why capitalism is the problem um sorry you're in for a rough decade because this is becoming more and more apparent every day so i, I did want to circle back that. to the guardian because they were just sort of in like they had just this big hot situation with nathan robinson who has been on this show he's a friend and um they recently took some tweets from his uh, some some tweets that he said like critical of the U.S.'s role in Israel, and I don't I'm sure you've seen this. I don't know if you've talked mm -hmm. about it or not. Uh, and they basically used it as an opportunity to to can him. And like it's this is kind of like a tired kind of question and conversation about like the whole idea of cancel culture or what. Um, but but I guess like there is kind of like. And there kind of always has sort of been a cancel culture, but it's a cancel culture that like it, that's in service of, of power, right? And that's what the reality is. Yeah. This idea that there's like a new cancel culture when it's really just criticism is so bizarre to me. Like, yes, there has always been criticism. People have always criticized the written work of other people. It's so bizarre that it's become this like catchphrase. Um, and there's, I feel like there's always been, you know, people saying what needs to be said and then people like the establishment getting mad about it. It's just interesting that it's considered to, he's considered to be like a victim of cancel culture when I'm like, yeah, he said something critical of Israel. Everyone gets mad about that. And then it, the normal consequences happened, you know, it's just a, a, the whole cancel culture thing is so bizarre. To me. Well, they're trying to take, something that's actually uh, a lot of different things and collapse it into one thing that they're calling cancel culture. Right. Like if you look at the people who signed that Harper's letter, whether it was so dumb, like really runs the <laughs> political gamut from like there's, they had some liberals, they had some reactionaries on there. They had leftists. Like I don't ever want to be in the same bucket as, uh barry weiss sorry uh <laughs> but like also some of those people are hypocrites because we know that she cut her teeth trying to get professors fired for criticizing israel when she was in college by the way same year as me at columbia i did not know that until recently but i remember the film that she was trying to get everyone to watch which was called columbia unbecoming which was like it was about how all of these bad Arab professors were like criticizing Israel and uh, they oh needed God. to get the boot I, for it. I swear, I swear to God, there are only like two public high schools and two colleges in, in New York because I hear these stories of like, <laughs> of, uh, well, who is it? Lin Mail Manuel, whatever, the Hamilton guy, Immortal Technique, and Desus and Miro all going to the same school. And who else? Chris Hayes. And Chris Hayes? Yeah. I'm it's like, very weird. How do all these people get smashed together well, like Columbia that? makes sense. Columbia is one of the best journalists <laughs> in the country. So. I mean, it's an elite I mean, school. Well, I did not actually study journalism uh, as an undergrad because you can't major in journalism as an undergrad at Columbia. They want you to pay to go to grad school if you actually want to learn like a marketable skill. You know, That's undergrad is all about 
you know, teaching you to think the whole person. Blah. No, it's like total BS. Um, and they don't help you get a job afterwards. Spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. uh, people make friends in their like patronage networks. But uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't find it very helpful in terms of figuring out what I was actually going to do for money. That was almost like, I don't know, a, 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 a secondary concern, shall we say, at this particular institution. As a social worker who got a master's degree at Tulane to take clients to go grocery shopping at Walmart, I, I feel I feel your pain. But, you know, I I think I had it pretty close to the best and it still sucked in many ways. So can only imagine what it's like for everyone else. I can't stop looking at this cat over <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, y'all. So I, I know for anyone who's listened to the podcast, I know you've heard our cats and dog like a million times. It's because we live in a shotgun and there's like no way to keep them out of our space. And so I'm trying to just keep them close so that maybe they'll be like less destruct like destructive. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know if it's so okay. Jamie's not from New Orleans, so Let's explain to her what a shotgun is. Oh, so all of our oh, rooms. Oh, I, I know about shotgun yeah. shack. Oh, never mind. And yes. I've been to New Orleans several times. I like it very much there. Um, it's a really cool yeah, place. Sorry. It is a great place, um, except when you're trying to record a podcast with um, a dog. It's like really <laughs> a little neurotic. So uh, we have become a little codependent since the pandemic started. Um, I recently started a new job where I actually leave the house now, and he is not, he doesn't love it, I will say. Aww. I like seeing people's pets on the stream. I always enjoy that part of it. People's kids, people's pets. Just like show me, show me your babies. That's been such a weird part of the pandemic, though, is there's been so many stories of people getting in trouble for having their kids in the street. Like, you know, everybody's working from home. And I, I feel like I've read at least four or five articles about you know somebody getting like put on probation or having to talk to their boss because their kids like interrupted a zoom meeting or something and i don't know if that doesn't what's the state of capitalism well, they're just trying to like, put, my god like, they're just trying to looking for a reason to discipline workers aren't they it's almost like they are <laughs> yeah and just kind of that that fake you know that fake very like stupidly structured professionalism that doesn't actually matter. That's like basically just a way to keep non like white middle, middle to upper middle class people out of the workforce is my general feelings about it is what professionalism is. Yeah, for sure. Um, but wait, we were talking about cancel culture and I just want to say obviously bad that you could get fired for criticizing yeah. Israel yes, at this late date. Uh, I will not be They actually made a good joke for once on SNL this past weekend. You know the what I'm talking saw, about, yeah, about how oh, Israel is vaccinated half their population. I'm going to guess the Jewish half. Like, Michael Che made a funny joke. That was he's, real? I thought it was a meme. That's probably, no, it was real. And he's probably going to have to apologize for and it. Like, I guarantee oh, yeah. it. Wait, what? He's already been canceled the mentions i don't watch snl i don't really care so much about snl and i even knew about this because people they're just gonna hire dan crenshaw dan crenshaw to take his job oh my god no like they deserve you should give snl positive feedback when they make a good joke because they it usually sucks and is terrible and not funny so good job snl i know my opinion doesn't carry that much weight but 
obsessively reads his own mentions. So I feel like if we tweet something oh, out, we'll, he will online. see it. He's extremely online. All right. He's he really very is. online. Let me get in there. You know, I'm reply guy. He is all day. Guy. Robert will send, I'll just be in bed reading and he'll like burst into the bedroom to just like tell me about a Twitter fight he's having with someone. And I'm like, cool. Well, let's really quick for station ID, and I want to talk a little bit about um, about the uh, union drive that's happening in Alabama. But uh, you are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade, uh, Jeff, Aaron, and Robert on the show. We also have Jamie Peck joining us. So we're just kind of talking about some uh, some stuff. But I, I guess I wanted to pick your brain on, I guess, maybe a bit more broadly. The I mean, we, we're seeing this... Um, I guess this union drive election that's been taking place like over the past several weeks. Um, and I guess wanted to kind of pick your brain on like where you're at, like, like, like what, what are you seeing in there? That's, that's sort of uh, interesting. Cause I know you keep an eye on labor. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's very good and very important that Amazon workers are organizing a union and hopefully Hopefully they're going to win. I mean, the company has been throwing everything, everything at them to try to keep them from organizing. Like they were pushing to have the vote in person, even amid a pandemic. And especially considering many of the people who work there are low income people of color who are statistically more likely to die from COVID if they get it. So but they got denied on that. The, the vote is being mm-hmm. conducted uh, by mail. Um, what else did they do? They like tampered with the traffic lights. <laughs> I'm not even sure how that works to stop people from organizing, but they, they've just been hitting them with all kinds of like propaganda and maybe like psychologically disorienting tactics, <laughs> like the traffic lights. Cause they That's know, they one. know the stakes of this, you know, because there has not been a successful organizing drive in the united states at an amazon warehouse i mean they tried it in new york which is supposed to be a union town and they lost and they fired chris smalls who was one of the main organizers and you know amazon won so if this can happen in especially in a right to work state where you know you would think union power is not that strong it it just shows you that this movement needs to be rebuilt from the ground up Mm -hmm. and in some cases there are advantages to having no legal framework and no established union bureaucracy because you don't have to follow as many rules and it's harder in some ways it's a lot harder in some ways but in other ways um perhaps it's an opportunity to shall we say build back better (laughs) I, I, I think that you're right, and I think that, um, and I don't want to be like, I know there's a, there's some discourse around like, like, um, and I'm in favor of it, honestly. But the idea of organize the South is like a very specific reason. It's because the the South is an extremely um, fertile environment for like new unions to come pop up and and for power to to develop in a in a framework where I mean, obviously, I mean, very clearly, rather the the law is not on our side. Yeah, and I think it's remem- important to remember when we talk about the union union drive in New York and um, Michael Smalls getting fired. He wasn't just fired; he was smeared. They called him 
unintelligent. They called him a low information person. They, they said he was a rabble rouser. They said that he was a bad worker, that he had had a lot of disciplinary act issues. They said that he purposefully came to work with COVID with the intention of infecting his coworkers. And some of the, the one of the people who was spreading a lot of this stuff was Jay Carney, who is the Obama. press secretary under Obama. And I think you know, this is the thing we were talking a little bit off air about kind of our politics and how they've changed. But this is the thing that drives me the most nuts is like we are supposed to be on liberals and leftists. We theoretically have the same end goals. I mean, we have the same stated end goals in a lot of ways. And yet, you know, that wasn't, you know, a member of the Trump administration causing that union drive to to fail. That was, you know, a mem- that was a former member of the Obama administration. And it's just so important to remember that, especially because I've asked, especially with the, the weather going on right now, I've just been seeing just the worst, like Southern slander that people in Texas deserve to have no power right now or oh, that yeah. they deserve because they vote red. And I just think it's so important that we call that out when we see it, because, you know, the bluest of blue states are not any better and are oftentimes a lot worse just because they have people who say all the right things, but then stand in pro- in the way of progress in a much more, um, you know, it, it, impressive way. Yeah, than, and like New you know, York I think has a Cuomo, who's a Democrat, right? And like Cuomo is right in the middle of a cover-up. I mean, Cuomo, Cuomo's terrible. And he, he's mm-hmm. a bully, and he push, he like he, 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 he bullies teachers' unions, and he bullies... Um, he, he, he's right now, like, in the middle of this cover-up where he essentially... Uh, is hiding in like a number of, of deaths old people, essentially. Of, of, of nursing home patients, right? You want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. yeah, liberals can get off their high horse about that <laughs> and about a lot of things. And you, not to mention, you know, when you call something a red state, you call something Trump country, but the, uh, and, and there's a lot of smug ass liberals in blue states who think it's all these like white, poor whites, slack John Yokels voting for Republicans. If you want to talk about how the working class in these states and these areas votes, um, they don't vote. <laughs> like yeah. statistically speaking, the biggest predictor of whether or not someone votes is how much money they have, which correlates roughly with education. Um, so to say that these places are even like red states or all Trump supporters is just like uh, statistically a lie. And even so. That's true. And then, but even if people are, you know, Trump voters, I mean, I think we can kind of break down Trump supporters into a couple different categories. I mean, you have the people who just liked his white supremacist rhetoric and, you know, there's not really much we can do with those people. But then you had a lot of people who he was the first person who spoke to them and to their needs in a really long time. And we have systematically gutted civics education in this country. And then we uh, and there's no media literacy training. We don't know how to, to, I mean, a lot of people just don't know how to sift through what's a real Facebook story and what's a fake Facebook story. And then we are simultaneously sitting on our high horses and blaming people for not knowing what they don't have access to. It's, it's infuriating to me because I, I come from a family of a lot of like well-meaning white liberals and they just don't understand how anyone could be for Trump. But I'm like, okay, well, you know, we well, went to good public schools. We, ha- I had civics education and American history and world history and a media literacy course, right? Like I know how to sift through that kind of stuff, but that's not a skill that many people are taught. And I don't even know, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in high school. So 
who knows what they're getting taught now, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't see how anyone could be for Cuomo either, (laughs) quite honestly. He is terrible and corrupt and uh, really not that much better than a Republican, if at all. So from where I'm sitting, they're both pretty bad and it doesn't make you good just because you vote for the blue MAGA instead of the red MAGA. And also people weren't like Trump sexuals. People were Cuomo sexuals. Like oh, it's probably oh, that was so yeah. cool. Do you remember that? That was the worst. I think it is maybe not remind me. 2020. So I mean we I mean a lot of people sexualized Republican women, but I did not see anyone sexualized John oh Trump. The libs are so horny in such a really embarrassing, cringy way. Like I mean, I guess everybody is horny, especially right now, but it just seems especially bad when I see liberals who are like horny for Cuomo or Obama or whoever. It's like gross. I think Obama's like a life. Be horny for someone with good politics. <laughs> right. Be horny for Noam Chomsky, everybody. Okay. Oh my gosh. Did you uh whatever? Um <laughs> be horny for who, Nathan who's Robinson. To say that, who's to say that he's not horny? Oh he's God. not sexy. But anyway, <laughs> um the our velvet boy. <laughs> I, I I kind of like when you when you think about like specifically the electoral thing like that. Like the the way the Democrats operate is essentially with this baseline assumption of like, what are you gonna do? Like we can be as terrible as we want. What are you gonna do? Vote for Republicans or whatever, or like not vote at all? And the answer to that is yes. They they either don't vote or they say, F you, I'm gonna go like trigger the libs because I don't see another way out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, really, what are you gonna do instead is it sounds like an invitation to me to, you know, just do a really good job at leftist organizing yeah. to hopefully someday do the thing. Well, that's, this is this is what we call In the Minecraft. rev. We've decided the thing, the thing or barbarism. That's what we that, that's the challenge of the next few decades, I think. Well, speaking of good SNL jokes, I don't know if y'all remember. Um, I say it's like Not I said many. I hate <laughs> SNL, but I do watch it fairly regularly. But um, there was the episode with Tom Hanks on where he was on Black Jeopardy playing oh, a MAGA no. guy and was able to answer all the questions because like there was not that much difference between like culturally oh, between joke. like a MAGA voter and then, you know, other working class poor people. And I just, yeah. It was like one of the bits where like uh, a new Apple phone wants you to use your fingerprint to unlock it. And it was on, you know, black jeopardy and Tom Hanks goes, heck no, that's how to get you. And all the black people are like, absolutely. That's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there's a general distrust of the government that doesn't always slot neatly into left and right, um, which is, you know, one of the bad things about populism, actually. <laughs> like, it's messy. And, you know, I would like to see people develop not just a populist hatred of the elites, but a structural critique of the capitalist system that is making all the bad things happen. Um, when you only can see the elites, that's when you go down roads into conspiratorial thinking, I think. But, um, you know, that's not how things are in the real world yet. Uh, the working class is not yet a class for itself. And it's not just this sleeping giant that we can awaken by saying the right words or running on the right policies. You know, it's really 
as a political category and a political actor needs to be built, I really believe. Um, and, you know, not in a not in a paternalistic way, but I think the challenge of the organized left is to come in and, you know, take all of this raw material that we have to work with, all of this anger against the system, which is totally justified, and give it a positive vision for mm -hmm. the future. And, you know, in some cases, the leftists need to follow the lead of what the workers are already doing, mm -hmm. like show up to other people's struggles, whether we're talking about um, the Hunts Point strike recently, where a lot of my DSA comrades went to support striking workers, or whether we're talking about the George Floyd uprising, where people were looting stores and burning down police precincts. We need to be there. We need to be there helping out and listening and learning because the working class is braver and more creative than so many people give it credit for. A hundred percent. And uh, let's just pause real quick for station ID and we can continue on this road. You're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Uh, we have Jeff, Aaron and Robert on the show. We also have guest uh, Jamie Peck. Um, so you alluded specifically to the... Um, the Hunts Point and AOC was one of the people that showed like as a she's kind of like found that I don't know if it's a sweet spot or whatever, but she kind of does sort of straddle these lines that people sort of take as 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 discrete from one another, like the 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 sort of like labor like like worker organizing and the sort of you know being an elected politician or whatever the hell. And I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting to because, like, I mean, I live I live just outside of New Orleans, and I see I live in Steve Scalise's district, and like, ain't no way he's ever gonna show up at a picket line Trump for workers. He'll show up on the boss's side with the cops and the guns and the dogs. You know, it's very, very. I, I think it's very, very cool, and, and, it, and it actually sends a a very clear message of whose side she's on, and that's that's I don't know that that that's important. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean. This used to be a normal thing, mm -hmm. like Democrats and organized labor. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think as the power of organized labor has waned for a lot of different reasons since the what a lot of people would refer to as the neoliberal turn of the 1970s, right. accompanied by the crisis of profitability, the and, oil shocks, all that stuff. And uh, the, direct, the direct frontal assault by capital on labor. Yes, absolutely. Um, the independent power, the independent working class power and institutional power of the labor movement has unfortunately waned and they've been forced to get increasingly in bed with the democratic establishment because when labor is on its back, it just it makes decisions that it can make in order to still even have unions. Um, but, you know, it becomes kind of a negative feedback loop because, uh, you know, labor loses power to the Democratic Party, that kind of has a snowball effect where uh, by, by the time, you know, 2016 rolls around, you've got a situation where like unions are endorsing um, Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, which is just not a pro-labor position in any way, shape or form. So I, I really think it's going to be important to rebuild that kind of institutional independent working class power so that uh, workers have a voice and so that labor is able to be more than just fighting to survive and fighting to exist, um, able to do things like 
um, like like what we saw with the teacher strikes the past few years, right? A, a mm. kind of social justice unionism that looks beyond the narrow interests of its members to a more overarching positive vision for improving society for everyone. And I think like that, the teachers unions, I think are a really great example of how sometimes it is liberals who are standing in the way of progress more than conservatives, because I know with specifically with the the fight against reopening schools, it's been mostly I've been following it in Chicago, but in other other places as well. There a lot of the arguments against keeping kids home and keeping teachers home and safe are there from liberals using woke language like, oh, we're leaving black and brown children behind. Oh, we're increasing we're increasing the education gap. Oh, the technology gap. And it's like, OK, yeah, there is a technology gap. Do you know how you solve that? Give everybody computers and like high speed Internet or and money. Like essentially it's it's this idea that wokeness is being weaponized to bring down the labor movement. And I, I've heard this specifically when talking about police officer unions as well. Like it's this idea that, oh, because, oh, we're anti-police, the police unions are bad because they protect police. Therefore, all unions are bad. And this is not, these are not arguments I've been hearing coming from conservatives. These are arguments co coming from liberals. Liberal. And it's, it's more insidious because it's, you know, if you're having a conservative say, hey, unions are bad because we want you to work 12 hours without overtime and no safety. It's like, okay, well, that's awful. But if they're saying, oh, unions are bad because they're they're keeping black and brown children from, from exceeding to their highest potential. It's like, no, that's it's not the teacher's fault. That's mm. not the union's fault. That's COVID's fault and our government's failure to just make sure we can all stay home and be safe. It, it's it's so frustrating because it's it's this argument that oh people get mad when you when you're like oh you talk more about liberals you talk more about democrats than you do about conservatives i'm like yeah honestly like the conservatives and i do not have the state like same stated end goals but you are saying that you want the world to be a better place and yet you're standing yeah, in the way well, that happen. i mean look uh liberals and leftists do not have all of the same goals mm -hmm. as much as the liberals might like to pretend that we do um, because at the end of the day, they accept the system as it is. They are depoliticized to the point where they think another world is not possible and they refuse to see the ways that their own ideology and the structures that they support lead directly to crisis and to fascism. And that's something that I think um, Adam Curtis does a really good job of showing in his um, documentary work. We actually did an episode about the new series on the Antifada this week, if anyone is interested. Um, but what, where can they find more information about that? Oh, um, yeah, patreon.com slash the Antifada or any podcast app. You can just type it in mm -hmm. and it'll pop right up. Um, but what else I was going to say about liberals is, uh, yeah, liberals want to help the poor in this sort of paternalistic charitable way and oh they always had the progressive movement going back to like you know new york in the gilded age it was these sort of upright middle class women usually going in to help these poor you know slovenly uh, poor people who just don't know how to live right they like give them a bible and tell them to like clean themselves up or whatever without ever once questioning the basic facts of the matter which is to say a society that allows people to be poor in the first place leftists are like hey 
why why is anyone poor there's no reason for anyone to be poor when we have we live in a world of abundance so i think we might share some short-term policy goals but our long-term solutions are very very different yeah you could even go on to say that like that's the distinction between these two discrete outfits or these two distinct distinct perspectives or maybe it's a, maybe it's like the prevailing one, more the the, the sharpest one. I don't know. Good job, yeah. Jeff. Not saying uh, we live in a society. I was waiting for that, and I was <laughs> going to strangle you through the. Got to keep the streak zoom. alive. <laughs> well, I've been listening to like a lot of Phil Oaks just on repeat. If anybody wants to know what my mental state has been like, that has been. But it's so it's like you listen to Love Me. I'm a liberal. And yeah, the references are a little dated, but the act the the meaning behind it is absolutely the same and it's infuriating. And, you know, I am one of those white women who goes into like poor black and brown neighborhoods, to try and help people. Um, and that's how my profession started. Like social work does not have the most noble beginnings. You know, it's very paternalistic. I think it, that's changing in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of social workers, younger social workers do have a better viewpoint of things, but, you know, I do think that's what a lot of what changed my changed me from a liberal to a leftist because I was like, I don't know. There's no reason why I have, I like am your social worker and you are my client. Like we are just as smart. We're the same smartness levels. Um, we are the same, <laughs> like that made me, I am smarter than that sounded like. I know what but, you mean. You know, like, I know what you mean. Even, uh, it was very funny. I wasn't laughing at you. I've had, I have clients who like, if I was in their situation, I would have died already. Like I'm just, I would not be resourceful in the, the way that they are. And so like, they're probably just objectively better at life than I am. It's just that I've been very fortunate in my circumstances and my circumstances of birth. And it's just so frustrating too, because it's, you know, you hear, I worked in housing for a really long time and, you know, my clients did not get materially worse under a Trump presidency. You know, I think if a Trump presidency had continued, it probably, that would be a different story, but people have this idea that things got bad under Trump. And I'm like, they were bad under Obama. They were bad under Bush. They were bad under Clinton. Like it's this idea. And and that's why my clients don't vote. Like they just, I, that was kind of my, my little pet project was around the election. Like, Oh, let's get you. Let's, if you, even if you don't do the, the um, national election, like let's vote in local and to a T mm-hmm. my clients all said, it doesn't matter. It's a scam. And I'm not that, voting. Why would I vote? That, well, <laughs> that, to the that is an informed position. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I had nothing to say about it. I was like, all right. I mean, lo- I, I would try and convince them. I'm like, okay, well, your, your vote does have more power in a local election. And so we would try at least go that route. But I, I didn't really have a leg to stand on. If they're like, yeah. yeah, I voted for Obama and like, I still lost my housing. And you're like, oh, yeah, that sucks. Sorry about that. And it's, it's like, we're sending in, I would say social workers, teachers, nurses, like all of these kind of like the helping professions, we're sending people in to be the band-aid for this broken system. I have a close friend who's a school social worker and she's amazing at it and she loves it. And she was like, I can't do this anymore. She's like, I'm a band-aid for a broken system. And I just, I can't do it anymore. It's, you know, that's one of the reasons I haven't been on the show for a long time is just every day I face how I can't help and like the way my clients are struggling and like, I cannot fix it. It is, I, it is not within my power. There are not the resources out there. And not only my clients were kind of used to that, but seeing people who maybe did have a faith that there was a safety net 
they had faith in the government that if things got so bad, like, oh yeah, some, someone will come and help me realizing that like, no, you are like, you will get evicted. You, there's not another stimulus check coming. You do not qualify for unemployment. And just seeing people break because they're realizing that they really thought that, you know, the, the government was there to serve and realizing that that's not the case lately. No, it's, not. Um, it's been not amazing, I will say, to witness. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about now a, a recent piece that my friend uh, Terrence from Trillbillies wrote in, I want to say, the first of books blog. And he's kind of got his finger on the pulse of Whitesburg, Kentucky. They have this column in the local paper called Speak Your Peace, where people like say their opinions on various matters of the day. And like, yeah, there were people writing in there like, why should I vote? Why does any of this matter? They're all corrupt. They're all bad. And like from the position of a communist who wants to encourage people to do things and organize and do actions that would overthrow this bad doomed system um there are openings there there are also openings for people who say would vote for like a left populist like a bernie sanders but i think when you center uh when you center elections and you center electoral politics you leave out a lot of the most oppressed people and the people with the most reason to fight. And a lot of those people, like, you ignore them at your peril, you know? Mm -hmm. It's part of yeah, a absolutely. broader picture, isn't like, it? Yeah. Like, a lot of people, a lot of the working class doesn't vote and probably never will. And you can't ignore those people when you're doing your socialist project. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that elections are bad. Uh, certainly not. Um, I'm I'm sort of agnostic, actually, on electoral politics, as I am on many things. I think it's really hard to know uh, at this point in time what relationship any of us will or will not have had to the project of building communism, because it's so enormous and you know off in the future. But uh, certainly, we got to do things other than run people in elections and. Uh, the DSA is doing pretty, pretty well at doing a lot of things. I mean, we don't have that much power to show for it yet, but uh, it is good to see that there are that many working groups outside of electoral, which tends to get most of the attention because that's how, you know, the lamestream media understands politics. But there are people working on so many different things, including um, the defund campaign that I'm working on in New York City right now to defund the police, mm -hmm. including um, immigrant justice, um, racial justice, labor, all of those things are tied together. And electoral is just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I view electoralism as harm reduction, essentially. You know, until we're ready for a full on revolution, we have the government we have and we need to work within that government. And so it is, I feel like it is important to have people who are at least not going to do harm while they're there, um, which is how I view like an AOC or an Ilan Omar. Like, I don't think that they're the be all end all the saviors, even a Bernie Sanders. Like I view those candidates, those politicians as the most likely to not do harm. And that's why I support them. You know, I like, I'm here for full on revolution if that's what we're doing, but we're not doing that yet. And so it's just so frustrating to me to like, these conversations we've been having about electoralism and it's like simultaneously people don't care at all. And I think that's not necessarily 
the right tack to take because like we do need good politicians otherwise you end up with like Steve Scalise's and like freaking Cedric Richmond's all over the place like and then but at the other end like AOC is not selling us out because like she isn't able to single-handedly like bring Medicare for all to fruition like there's like it's all in between and I do think that electoralism really can bring the spotlight to other stuff like you said AOC is going to picket lines. You know, we have a, um, a, a candidate, Gary Chambers, who he came to, um, he's running for um, the House in Louisiana, House Louisiana too, I think. Um, and he came to prominence because he had a viral um, speech to the Baton Rouge um, school board. board. School board. And, you know, I think those kind of, the momentum caused by those people, I think is really important just to bring attention towards the other stuff that needs to happen in organizing. But I don't know. It's, it just feels like the conversation and obviously it's the online conversation. I think, you know, people who are actually doing a lot of real organizing um, are a little bit more centered about it and like a little bit chiller. Um, but the the online conversation has just been so bizarre. It's like an either or situation. Um, and it's been kind of hard to follow, honestly. Yeah. I don't well, know, Aaron. I mean, I really think that, you know, AOC is, is, keeping us away from Medicare for all. And also the proud boys have some good points. You should oh definitely God. like platform them and have them when on did, your show. How did Nico house get on the show? I have a light that is a meme. Can, can we talk? Cause I don't think people who, let um, me, let me do a station ID real actually quick. This over the radio, listen let, to Jimmy Dore. So let me no, do a station. ID. Don't say his name. Come on. You just invited the vampires in. <laughs> You're listening to WHIV LP, New Orleans, 102.3. Good morning, comrade. Uh, we have Jeff, Aaron, and Robert on the show. We also have uh, guest Jamie Peck uh, from the Antifada. Uh, so what were you saying, Robert? I was saying that we should just platform more fascists. I oh, mean, no. that'll bring us Medicare for all. Mm. Obviously, the Jimmy Dore guarantee. Oh, Ironclad. Again, oh married to him is like literally just me sitting doing something quietly and him like bursting in and like saying something wild and then leaving and then me being like, all right, bye, yeah. have a good day. It's fun times. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, if I get canceled because of my husband, that's going to be the least funniest thing that's ever happened. Um, I dream we have like Good Morning Comrade out of context channel. Somebody tries to put up on YouTube or something. I know. I'm always worried I'm going to get canceled on behalf of my ex-husband. He's not even my husband anymore, but we still do a podcast together. Mm -hmm. And, he, you know, Sean be tweeting. <laughs> Sean is, Sean he be tweeting and he be playing that tank game. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, that that firecracker. Now, most of his takes are good. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to uh, kind of you brought up DSA a little bit ago. You talked a lot about some of the working groups and and uh, that are going on there. And you described a little bit about like the role that you see that it plays. And just to sort of like put my cards on the table, like I I sort of see it as almost like a place like a place where a lot of these like different aspects of working class um, power building essentially can come together. I mean. Um, like there's, I, I was the co-chair of the labor committee in, in the New Orleans DSA for two years, and and it was one of those things where, you know, you you 
from the very basic stuff of like learning how to like organize an agenda for a meeting and turnout and phone banking and like the very very basics of getting getting people to do the same thing for an hour and then turning that into you know strategies and into programs and into you know into more and more i don't know in terms of like the potential of those kinds of organizations and you and i are both members i think uh, aaron and, and robert are both members as well um Correct. so like General what do you see in terms Saturday, of like, like there, you know short term and potentially long term potential i suppose yeah well so i can say yeah so my caucus emerge it's a communist caucus out of new york city that i am a part of recently put out a position paper on the party question the ballot line question and all of these questions that have been going around lately and uh again i'm agnostic on many things but i think it's as good an answer as anyone's come up with which is that um we need to get away from the idea of an electoral third party with its own ballot line because that is failing to see the forest for the trees um right and even in places where there have been uh, socialist parties uh as soon as they win power guess what they're managing a capitalist economy and that's going to be overdetermined it's going to be constrained by a lot of factors and you know they're gonna end up implementing austerity in many cases so what's the x factor that we actually need we actually need a base of working class power that is independent from any electoral party um i think the party should be more more than an electoral party like it can run electoral campaigns when it finds it tactical to do so but really what the party is or should be is an explicitly political organization that takes care of people's needs needs of all kinds mm -hmm. takes care of their uh need for food if people are hungry it takes care of their intellectual needs in terms of political education and it serves to kind of unite and stitch all of these struggles together into one struggle called the struggle for communism and or socialism, if you want to call it that. Class struggle, um, though. It's class, same thing. Class struggle. Yeah. And, you know, show how all of these things are connected, coordinate between the different arms that are doing all the different things. And, um, yeah, when it makes sense to do so... Um, they can do electoral campaigns if that's what the members democratically decide that they want to do. But I think this ballot line question is a red herring and I don't really think it matters all that much um, whether you're running on the Democratic Party ballot line or if there is a viable third party on the viable third party's ballot line. Like at the end of the day, you know, we want to destroy this system of bourgeois electoral politics in in the first place, in total, we want to overthrow the bourgeois state and all of these things that we're doing are just tactics, steps on the way there. So like, yeah, I am also sympathetic to the idea that, you know, once you get elected, once you're in power as and you got a D next to your name, um, you're going to be subject to all kinds of forces. Um, but I think the answer to that is to have these these real grassroots working class movements that operate at a critical remove from any uh bourgeois political party that serve as a as a counterweight to all these powerful forces of co-optation of course there's always contingencies right like uh 
Biden will probably not do the shit that we want him to do. Sorry for cursing. Okay. Um, no matter, uh, unless we really, really, really force him to do so. Whereas, you know, AOC probably does more of what we wants to do, more of what we want her to do. Uh, but we still have to, you know, we still have to keep the pressure on in a friendly way. So, um, are, are you saying but, we need to keep her accountable? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, but like the idea, the idea that we're gonna like expropriate twenty percent of the economy, which is what Medicare for all would do, and uh, take it out of the hands of the capitalists and put it into the hands of the state uh, without some sort of concerted workers' movement, uh, like. That's ridiculous. Like you're not you're not going to get it via a parliamentary procedure. You're just not like yeah. that's that's a technocratic view of how the yeah. world works. Can we not filibuster our way into equality? <laughs> Is that not a thing we can do? It kind of doesn't matter if there's a like a like a the filibuster like quest like when people start talking about these sort of like very specific like procedures or whatever like you were just saying like those are like not that that's not what's going to win as medicare for all at all and like like what i really hate about when these people who uh you know i don't want to talk the ftv thing that that long but like the thing that really kind of like makes me a little bit wild about it is like i agree in principle with a lot of the like things that they're like saying as principles however i don't agree with like the analysis of the like situation or whatever you know i don't analyze i don't agree that we're in the position to like to, to to like call even like our nominal like like people like aoc like essentially like casting them as enemies and say they're standing between us and healthcare. I think that's actually well, pretty bad strategy. I mean, on some level, every elected official yeah. is our enemy and people should not be naive about that. Sure. Like they shouldn't stand them. They shouldn't expect them to do it all mm -hmm. for us. Like magic. We shouldn't cancel them either. They're just, they're tools, you know, right. they're tools in our, in our they're tools and they're fallible people. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of like value judgments that's coming along with this conversation about, and like, yeah, maybe, maybe AOC has made mistakes. Like she definitely has made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Yeah, of course. It's this weird idea that, oh, she's all like, if, uh, if she makes a mistake or if any kind of, of the progressive politicians make a mistake, if Bernie makes a mistake, that it's somehow a, a calculated effort against progress or against the left or against the end goal of medicare for all when reality it's politicians are human and we all make mistakes and we oftentimes can't see the forest for the trees you know we we're pretty one like we're pretty focused on stuff and it's it's hard to see the big picture and so that's another thing that's been weird about this conversation is you know we can have the conversation about you know tactics and we can have the conversation about whether we think decisions were good ones or not and you know whether they made the right choices but this weird thing that we also need to put a value judgment on you know someone making a choice when yeah maybe it was the wrong choice but like we need to have that conversation but it doesn't need to be like a full-on like canceling I guess yeah it's, the whole I mean, like, conversation just feels like a very like unimaginative like we can't like, oh, we have to have a third party because that's the only way this world can ever work. And that that's the only way our society can ever work as opposed to, it's like, hey, like, we could just not do this. Like the founding fathers were 
kind of assholes. Like we don't have to do this anymore. We can choose something else. Like, like the constitution's not great. No, it's, it's like it these goofballs not. have turned on Nina Turner. And it's just like, what do you, who do you think is the relief pitcher when you pull Nina Turner off the mound? We don't have a deep bench. Like, I don't understand what is your tactic? What is your strategy? And I like this whole like force the vote thing. It seemed to materialize when the Democrats hadn't even won Georgia yet. Like, I definitely remember that. Like, if you want to have a thing and you want to say, look, now that we've won Georgia, we have all three branches of government. And where's the bill? You better show me that you're writing the Medicare for all bill. You've got a year to do it. I'd be like, okay, that's that's fair. That's reasonable. But you're like, let's do a doomed vote right now. It's like taking, uh, it's applying sort of an ultra left, uh, ultra left posturing or vibe to something that is essentially still like a liberal, uh, a liberal bourgeois electoralist thing. But they just want to do like the edgiest version of that. But I've had actual, I mean, look, I'm very familiar with the actual ultra left and I guarantee you none of, no ultras worth their salt, like know or care about any of this because it's wedded to, you know, parliamentarianism and other bad things. And um, I, I'm not fully an ultra leftist. I kind of straddle the line between tendencies, but you know, it's a position that I respect um, probably more than a lot of people do. Um, and we try to be ecumenical on the Antifada by having on all the different kinds of communists. And they are one of them. And we've had a few good episodes with them lately. And then we did a little counterpoint with my friend uh, Kay from, from, my, from my caucus as well as from the defund campaign, sort of defending these campaigns to defund the police and their revolutionary potential. So. Well, I think it's the, you know, the same way that we need to figure out how do we harness the the energy of the working class, even when maybe they don't have the same like quote unquote wokeness. It's we have these kind of terminally online leftists are generally just people who have been left out of the system and now can have their voice be heard, whether or not it's like in a constructive way or not. And so that's been, I think that's kind of a, a challenge for the DSA and other organizations to how do we harness people? Because like Jeff said, like organizing is really boring a lot of the time. Like it's making a lot of calls. It's putting together spreadsheets. It's not very glamorous. It's a lot of meetings and a lot of nonsense and stuff that you probably don't really want to be doing. And it's a lot easier to, to get on Twitter and, you know, say that you're going to like, recall AOC and like start that you know it's just that that's a challenge that I mean I think we're gonna have to figure out and I don't know that anybody has a super great answer for it yet I think you know I think shows like Majority Report and the Antifada like I think are really good because they're a good they cover so much stuff and they're accessible from a lot of different angles and so I think that's a really good place for a lot of people to start but then you have you know the more like fringy grifter types that capture a lot. And so I, it's like, how do we fight back against that? It's, I guess, the eternal question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel bad sometimes for making money off media mm-hmm. and a Patreon. But I will say, uh, of all the leftist podcasts that are making, you know, decent money, um, 
we're one of the only ones that has actual people with organizing experience on it. So I might not be the best organizer in the world, but I'm still doing it because I don't want to lose touch with the movement and what it means to be an organizer. Also, I have comrades who will tell me if I'm ever making a fool of myself, which uh, is really important, I think. Like, I, it's, it's hard not to be an opportunist in this capitalist model of how we all make money and we're all, like, siloed into our own little Patreon uh, worlds. And, you know, we kind of all go on each other's podcasts, so that's the way we, like, communalize it a little bit. But um, all you can do is really be aware of it but it definitely helps. Like I would love to have like an actual party that I am officially accountable to. Like that's all of our, uh, all of our ambition at the Antifada is like, we want to be an organ of the party. What party? Well, it's still, it's still forming and we have to help it along. Um, but you know, I think as long as you're aware of it, it's okay. I don't know. I'm just like justifying myself, but like the best, the worst organizing I've ever done is probably still more important than like the best media I've ever done. And I'm much better at media than I am at organizing. Right. That's the same way. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. It's like, get it how you get it, how you can. I mean, we're not, it's ridiculous to expect people who are working towards a better future to not be able to support themselves now. And living in a capitalist society means you're going to have to make some some choices that you probably wouldn't want to make and there's just no way around that um like i'm a social worker i'm not gonna do that ish for free like you better pay me and i wish like it, it's essentially just organizing but for money and i i do have a lot of feelings about that but i'm like what am i supposed to do just not live like i like there we've talked about it before there's no social safety net so at a certain point like people need to be supported in doing the work and that means they need money and they need food and they need a place to stay. And until we have a, a system in place and hopefully the DSA or whatever other party maybe Workers party. can make that happen so that people don't have to worry about their kind of material needs while they're doing the organizing. But as of right now, like we, we need jobs. <laughs> like, Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Well, we should wrap up, but uh, thank you so much, Jamie. Where can we find more uh, information about uh, what you're doing over at the Antifada? I'm so glad you asked. Well, um, if you check out patreon.com slash the Antifada, that's got all of our episodes. And uh, if you become a patron, you can uh, get all of our paywalled episodes, all of our bonus content, as well as access to our Discord community, which is full of like, I'm really impressed at the quality of fans that we have. Maybe it's because we're just like a small niche communist podcast, but like, We've got good fans and they're they're self-organizing a reading group right now with stuff with texts that we talk Love about on nice. the show, which makes me really happy. And again, impressed at the quality of listeners that we have. Um, we're also on Twitch. We've been streaming four nights a week now at twitch.tv slash the Antifada. We usually do it around 7 p.m. Eastern until like nine or ten and that's that's a thing that we're doing at least right now while no one's really going out at night because it feels like almost like hanging out so yeah. it's fun it's been fun and i hope everyone likes what we're doing because we work really hard on it 
Yeah, we certainly I do. Can. Thank you so much for the Hearts of Iron gameplay. Oh, I, love, I love to watch middle-aged men play dad games, being a middle-aged man myself. So. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know how Sean's going to react to being called middle-aged, but... Uh, <laughs> if you're playing Hearts of Iron, if you're playing the tank game, where you just move pictures of tanks around, that's what it is, and pretend you're historical leaders, you're a middle-aged man. Oh, well, I'll be sure to let him know that I'm, for I'm you. More, I'm more how do you play Microsoft Flight Simulator? Um, anyway, yeah, you could listen to Good Morning Comrade on WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. Uh, you can get more information about our show, Good Morning Comrade, at goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, you should also tune in. Uh, we have been uh, doing live shows at 8 o'clock every Monday at 8 o'clock Central. Uh, YouTube, uh, just search Good Morning Comrade. All right, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, thanks, Aaron and Robert. Love everybody. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye.